Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, we, Megan Dom and Sarah Hader, humbly accept this mission in order to bring you conversations that are equal parts unapologetic, uncompromising, and bitter. Welcome to a special place in hell. How's life in hell for you today, Sarah? Going good. This is we're recording later than our normal time. So that's nice. Yeah, it's I've gotten to decompress. seven o'clock in the morning for me. Yeah, that's nice. Yes. And I'm also for those of you watching on YouTube, I am uh, attempting to do this without my glasses, because I'm so sick of them reflecting off the screen. But can you read like how how good I have eyesight? enlarged the uh, the the print on my documents to, you know, 64 point font. So okay. I can see it's like the eye chart, like I'm looking at the <laughs> yeah. top line of an eye chart. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Apparently, uh, the way anybody over a certain age, if they're doing a video podcast and they don't have reading glasses on, they're using a teleprompter. Really? Fun fact. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Okay. So if our people would like to donate to the cause, get me a teleprompter. <laughs> Just something to keep in mind. I've always wanted glasses. You I think crazy. I would look good in glasses. You would, but just look, you'll you'll get them soon enough. Okay. And uh, you can always get fake ones. Yeah, but that I don't know. I, that's that, that's not that's not that's not what I want. You know what I mean? Like I want I wanted I want the whole thing. I want the 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 true, you know, real uh, partial disability. Yeah. It is a disability, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. I feel like everybody gets LASIK now, so you don't see glasses as much as you used to. It's funny because when you look at a picture from like the 70s, um, not only is everybody really thin, so many of them are wearing glasses because people yeah. didn't have contact lenses. Yeah. Uh, I think people wear contact LASIK. lenses a lot. Yeah. I, I know some people who've had LASIK, but I know lots of people would just wear contacts every day. Yeah. 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 My husband wears contacts every day and his entire family is just glasses people but they all wear you know so many of them wear contacts you would yeah know. oh i wear contacts but i need oh, reading but I, yeah i need reading glasses to see the screen that's the issue oh okay so you already have contact lenses i already have contacts and yeah but if i need to read no, this is just in the last few years i need reading oh, okay. glasses this is a new development okay so in addition to the regular yeah, it's just a disaster okay, without your anything. contact lenses can you see well you know that's funny because yes if i take so I, if i'm reading at night I just had to take my contacts out and I can read a book. I can hold, but I can hold it up. I can. Yeah. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. uh, I can't see the computer screen anyway, riveting stuff. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna, um, this is, uh, this is an episode that that's not exactly right off the headlines. Uh, no. we're going to talk about, uh, something that we've been talking about a lot. Uh, just the Privately. two of us. Yeah. 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 This was like, it, it, it has to do a little bit with, um, you know, the topic of my debate, which was a sexual revolution and a kind of a tangent that I fell into like a little rabbit hole when I was researching and prepping for the debate itself. Um, this idea <laughs> of like for, and prepping the, for something that was just, it was totally percent of your 90, material. 90, 90. 
I don't think I was able to use anything. Like I was, there was like two things I was able to use, but it was, okay. anyway. This is the free press debate in case you're just joining us. This is the, uh, the free press, uh, uh, se- has the sexual revolution failed debate that was in Los Angeles last Yeah, month. it wasn't much. It wasn't much of a debate, but it was a show and it was a fun show, I think, um, for the people in the audience. Anyway, um, I was a little bit disappointed because I was ready with my little, you know, my little debater hat yeah, on. But you won anyway. Uh, so. I won. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the era that's referred to sometimes as the baby scoop era. And um, my understanding is this is from about 1945 to 1973 and unwed mothers, basically, if you were pregnant uh, out of wedlock, chances are you would be, um, let's just say, uh, highly encouraged to to give up your, your baby for adoption. Um, and uh, you did some research and found out it wasn't quite that straightforward even. No. And it, it's interesting because this is a time in which adoption became normalized, um, you know, before kind of the, the early, like, you know, 1920s, 30s, it wasn't a very common thing in America to, to use adoption as a way of building your family. People were concerned that the kids that they would receive might be, you know, they would, might have some physical problems or is there something wrong with like, you know, the, the product that you were receiving, but it was also just, just frowned upon socially because there was, and no, nobody liked the idea of potentially taking a child away from from their mothers. Um, so this was this was a period in which it became increasingly normalized to adopt children, um, partially because it, it it was likely that there were just more unwanted unwanted quote unquote um, unwed mothers who were um, uh, you know who were in this predicament of having to be a single mother at a time in which that was just simply not acceptable, and there were not a lot of options available to you as a single mother. Um, so, so uh, many of them were were pressured to give it up. And I think it's just fair to say we don't even have to say that you know they volunteer quote unquote to give it up. I think it's we should just be clear about it and say that they were coerced because those who have looked into the like historians and like, you know, um, various people who are interested in the history of adoption in America, who have looked into the baby scoop era, found that many of the young women who had fallen pregnant and, um, uh, you know, had given up their babies when they were later asked about it, when they were interviewed um, or just just when anyone at all had, had asked them you know, about it, they 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 found that the vast majority were haunted by the decision. And it wasn't, they didn't even call it a decision. Most of the time they said that they, somebody took my baby away from me, you know, like somebody stole my baby. Um, and that, that this was a traumatic event in their lives that they thought about often, but it, it was a time where you couldn't, you really couldn't talk about it. The whole point of giving away your baby was to sort of pretend like it hadn't happened. Right. You hadn't gotten pregnant. Right. Um, you had never had sex. You were a virgin still, you know, and then you could pretend like you could just put, erase it from your mind and so they had no one to talk about it. They had to keep it a secret. Um, yeah. And it was something that they thought about a lot. And it was just, um, it, it, it was shocking how how many babies were relinquished uh, in, in this time yeah. and, uh, you know, separated from their mothers. It's shocking. So did you come across in your research, like, what were the scenarios? Because, I mean, my understanding was that like you would get these would be young women or teenagers and they would go to a home for unwed mothers mm-hmm. right and then yeah. like you know there's all this this idea of them the 
the the Magdalene laundries, like this is something that came out of Ireland where like literally they would be, the girls would be taken and like they would do laundry like during the course of their pregnancy. And um, uh, I mean, I remember, I mean, I, th this was something that was not uncommon. I mean, this was like something that you would see on an after school special or on a TV show or something. Like somebody would get pregnant and then they would go like, you know, to some so this kind happened of happened to your in, in your time. No, no I was a kid, but I remember just, yeah. I remember watching like, you know, some episode of some TV show and that would happen. But it, it was not it was portrayed as like, oh, this teenager got pregnant and we're going to um, help her. And so we're going to you know, she's going to go to a place where there's other girls like her and they'll be kind of like like she was going to boarding school or something like she was just mm -hmm. going away for a period of time. And she's mm -hmm. going to have the baby and give it up to a good home. And this would be better for everybody. She would be able to go have her life. The baby would have you know, parents that would be able to care for it. And it, you know, I never, um, I mean, I didn't think about it too hard as I was growing up, but it was really portrayed as like a win-win, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. right. Um, and I never thought of it as particularly tragic, although, you know, certainly there would be a lot of women who would talk about having done this. There were a couple of high profile cases, Patty Smith, actually, um, I think when she was 19 or 20 or something, um, had a baby, gave it up. Joni Mitchell famously, um, uh, and wrote a lot of songs about it. Um, it's a big part of her biography, but, uh, yeah. Um, so this is very, so like, what did, what was your sort of like relationship to the concept of adoption just throughout your life? I mean, I, I think I had never really thought very much about you know, the mothers themselves. So yeah, some, I, I assumed what everybody assumed, um, which is that, that they just don't want, they didn't want the child, you know, um, or they, uh, they're in the kind of circumstances where they can't possibly keep the child. Um, and that, that because of, because of the mother's circumstances, it is, you know, in everybody's best interest, uh, to have the baby, um, be adopted by a loving family, a loving and stable family. I don't think I thought too hard about the mothers themselves. I just, I, I presumed that if this was happening at all, it was probably happening because, you know, on some level, the mother allowed it to happen. Um, and it just, it really, um, you know, messed, messed with me to read all these cases and these, um, interviews of women who had who had um what they would what they say is relinquished or surrendered their baby that's what they mm -hmm. say surrender because it's like they 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 say that it i never felt like i gave my baby away you know i i, I felt like the baby was taken i felt like you know uh and then i grieved in the way that a parent grieves when they you know lose their child whether by by you know the, by death or by by a forced separation like this one but it, so many of them described the the event you know that as as something that was you know the defining you know most significant and you know defining event of their lives something they thought about all the time they they did not move on you know forget and move on and build a new life they constantly thought about their child um many of them regretted having gone through it but they also felt like they they had no other option i mean i it think it's probably unimaginable like i think right they probably it was can't even get their minds around an, an alternative other than like well, some kind of shotgun wedding i mean so it's either like marry the guy who knocked you up 
or do this. Their parents would never allow it. You know, they, they would say, you're going to be disowned. Like, if you come back home with a baby, we're never going to talk to you again. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no way for a woman to survive in that time, especially um, in the post-war years, uh, with, uh, with a baby and not be married. It was just an impossible thing for her to do. And so, but even then, right, even though this was such an impossible thing, so many of them recount the experience of of labor in these maternity homes, and and uh, you know, one one of the one of the most um, horrifying aspects of it is that these homes were really run by people who, I mean, they were very they were convinced that they were doing the right thing. Uh, they were often working with the adoption agencies, which is you know it's not yeah. it's not amazing that there was like a profit motive um, involved, but 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 they they did not provide any kind of you know. Uh, social like like uh, social work or you know um therapy or any kind of counseling to the young women about what labor was going to be like mm-hmm. what you know uh what what kinds of things it would feel afterwards it was nothing like that it was just they went into labor uh, not mm-hmm. expecting what would happen not expecting um uh, uh you know the consequences of like the postpartum period what would happen to them emotionally what would happen to them physically it was just traumatic all along all all, all around um but many of them describe giving birth and then seeing their baby and not wanting to let go like despite everything despite the the social consequences facing them they wanted to keep their babies uh and then they describe being coerced by um you know the the caseworkers in the maternity home doctors nurses like anyone around them to to give up their baby they were often kept in the dark about their rights um and led to believe that they couldn't take you know there's like there's some period where you can like after, you know, relinquishing your child where you can you yeah. like formally give it up. Um, but they were just they were kept in the dark about a lot of this legal about a lot about their legal rights um, to to keep their babies and led to believe that they had kind of already given them up, you know, and they didn't have many rights over this child. But it's just so it's so heartbreaking to read these stories of these women who describe looking at their babies, falling in love instantly and thinking in, you know, this like primal way, which I, I remember, you know, like when, when I, when, when, when I first gave birth, cause it wasn't just, it just wasn't something I expected, but it's, it is deeply primal. You fall in love instantly. You don't want to let go. And that's what happened to these girls. And they had to let go anyway. And they grieved, you yeah. know, terribly. Um, Sometimes I think they weren't even given the baby. I mean, I've heard stories like that. They didn't even get to see, the baby. And I feel like also sometimes their parents were colluding with these homes or with the adoption agency. I mean, I feel like I've heard stories of the women being told by their parents or other people that the baby had died, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's so, it's very, it's telling that this period officially ended in 1973, which what else happened in 1973? Roe, right? So, mm-hmm. um, I wonder, like you, I, I'm sure there, there were fewer, there were fewer out of wedlock births once you start getting legalized abortion, um, more access to birth control, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, so like before, <laughs> this is like, so bef- before 1945, were people just not having like sex? They were not having sex outside of marriage. I mean, it's just this kind of like the era of the teenager, like you get this kind of post-war era um, I, I don't know. They and were also- having sex. They were having sex. They were steadily increasing. That's what's interesting about it is that the 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 teen it, it, part of it was just cars, <laughs> like the the ability of teenagers mm-hmm. to be without 
um, parental like supervision. Yeah. Um, so they started having like it, 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 out of wedlock births started rising um, like, you know, 19, like 20s onward. And yeah, steadily uh, until we get to this like uh, this kind of peak in this baby scoop era, which co um, collided with uh, the societal acceptance of adoption as this like wonderful good that you're doing and you're helping everybody everybody you know it's just like a neat little happy ending for everybody um and they can make make their families um mm -hmm. beautiful and whole with this healthy child so parents um who adopted adoptive parents felt as if they were doing this this wonderful thing for a baby in need that had been abandoned by its mother's its mother and um a lot of those babies also write about you know their to tell their own stories and talk about how they felt abandoned their whole lives and how that impacted them psychologically um only to find out when they were much older that they were in fact not unwanted right yeah um i know so many people who are adopted really like yeah um it, it's yeah it's interesting and so you you because we were talking about this earlier so you actually don't know that many people like you didn't grow up with people no talking about i, I this knew or, one yeah. like adopted kid and he was like it was it was his whole thing you know it was his whole personality but wow, there was, she, <laughs> yeah. yeah but it was shocking it was strange and then i knew like two other people later on but they were like very peripheral like i didn't they weren't friends uh, see, um but yeah uh, it's so normalized i mean i just i knew i i know so many people who are adopted i can't even count like it's just something about them and some of them um think about it and want to find their biological parents or have found them others don't care at all i mean i know a lot of people who just have no interest in it um yeah um i actually know of um uh somebody who was an identical twin and she was born and they were adopted into separate families. Oh. Um, yeah. It was through a Jewish adoption agency in New York. They actually wrote, they actually wrote a book about it. It's called identical strangers. And um, yeah, they ended up finding each other. I don't know, in their thirties, maybe early thirties, late twenties. Mm -hmm. mm. um, and, you know, they looked exactly alike. And, and the, um, you know, one of them with the adopted parents, um, the one I know, um, Paula, she, she, you know, she would say that her adopted parents one time were like vacationing in France or something. And they saw a girl, they're like, oh my God, that looks just like our daughter. Like, what is like this young woman kind of walked past them, like on, on the streets in Paris or something. And then kind of later figured out that that very well could have been her identical twin who happened to be in Paris at the time, just weird stuff. Um, but yeah. And then people find their parents and that's a mixed bag, you know? Yeah. Um, it's yeah. never, ever simple. I mean, I, I don't, I can't think of a single case where, um, where expectations have been entirely met. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I, there's so few people I know who are, I mean, just that one kid that who I can recall I, and in my adult life, I haven't run into many people. I just think that it has dwindled quite a bit. I mean, I know that the adoption like uh, industry has declined quite a bit and this is why it kind of went international a couple of, you know, like decades yeah. ago. So, yeah. so American babies, uh, women stopped, stopped relinquishing them um, around the time it became more acceptable to be a single mother, thanks to the sexual revolution. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so incredible that there is such a high demand for infants in particular. 
and that that it fell so so dramatically. I, mean, I think even in the in the baby scoop era, demand still might have been uh, higher than the supply. Oh, I'm sure. And that's why there were you know those horrific cases like um, uh, the woman Georgia Tan. Is that? Oh yeah, you know tell us about, about her. I know a right. little bit about her. Yeah, I. I I don't want to linger too much on this story or on this woman because she's so horrifying, but she was one of the uh, uh, most sinister characters I think I've ever read about in my life. Um, but she was a, a woman um, who ran, you know, in, in Mississippi, who ran this um, adoption agency, like a children's home in Tennessee. Uh, and she was, you know, uh, I think... I mean, so she, she, what she ran was a, a, the front was an adoption agency. Um, but what she was actually was doing was, uh, child trafficking, like truly kidnapping children, uh, uh, selling them to wealthy families. She made a lot of money, um, over the course of the, um, the time that she ran this, this home, she had, uh, officials in the government working alongside her who were, you know, colluding with her, with her scheme. Um, it's a, a really nefarious uh, story. Uh, and you can, I, I don't want to go into the grisly details because it is just horrifying when you um, hear from the children who were, you know, kidnapped. Oh, many of them were poor. She would look for like good looking children. And these were um, white children. She would have, presumably. These were white children. Um, she would she would drive around in in a in a uh, you know beautiful car, and cars weren't so common, especially in poor areas. And she would literally tempt the kids with like candy. Like so these, these poor would be kids, like older kids. Would, these were not infants. These were like, sometimes they were sometimes they were really young. Sometimes they were a little older. But she would she was she was full on child trafficking. She was she was kidnapping children. She was uh, doing whatever she could to get her hands on beautiful children and then she would um sell them to to families um and even uh, the there were there was lots of um you know there were lots of horrifying reports of what happened in the home itself um how deeply neglected the children were many 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 died um, after they were adopted a, their adoptive families were then no no this was them? before this was this was while they were in the home waiting to be adopted oh i see so she would kidnap them put them in this home for kids and and uh, uh, and some of them would make it out and, um, some of them, some of them would not. And it was just this, an incredible story. And what's, is it, do you think that there is, um, something about a woman doing something so heartless and cruel that is, that makes it worse in your, like morally, like, do, do you judge, do you, do you have a double standard here or, or do you think you're eat, your well, instinct is it's to always go women lighter who are on doing her. that. It's always like the the nurse, you know, somebody the the woman who sneaks into the maternity ward disguised as a nurse and kidnaps the baby. It, that that's a woman, you know. I yeah. think this kind of crime. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated with Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, yeah. Jeffrey Epstein's uh, procurer. Yeah, um, I was like that's her story is actually much more interesting to me than than his in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, um, ah, it's, it's, you're right. It is, it, it is often uh, these nurses. Yeah. Like, I mean, these I women think, in very domestic kind of, yeah. Like stuff that happens with kids, I think, um, you know, other than the obvious, like, you know, child, child predator, sex predator, kidnapper, um, tend to be women. I mean, it's, um, and I'm also thinking like, I feel like before 1945, 
there must have been a, a more community aspect of this. Like if somebody's parents died, a, a relative would adopt the kids or neighbor would take in the kids. Like you certainly had a lot of people dying back then, um, mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. and parents. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure there was sexual abuse and I'm sure that women were getting pregnant, you know, out of wedlock, even in the 19th century and before that. So, um, you know, who knows, but yeah, just this kind of, um, sort of new frontier 1950s, um, we're going to sort of socially engineer the, the world in such a way that, you know, people are living their best lives. I think that was, this is a reflection of that. Um, but then the international adoption thing, um, is a whole other kind of animal. I mean, I remember being in my early twenties and suddenly there were Chinese babies everywhere, like in New really? York city, just every, Oh yeah. You would just see it. White parents walking down the street with their Asian baby in a stroller. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I, we all thought it was great. Like we all thought, Oh, these parents are such good people. They're doing an amazing thing. This kid's going to have a fabulous life. These were usually affluent, educated people. Um, and I know a lot of parents who adopted these kids and they had, every, you know, they were totally well-intentioned and in some cases it's worked out great. Like I, it's, this, it's really, really complicated, you know, like this is one of these topics that there's no, there's just, there's no right answer. I mean, now this leads me into something I want to talk about. I was a volunteer in the foster care system, um, for several years, um, a while back, uh, here in Los Angeles County. And I was a CASA, which stands for court appointed special advocate. And it, this is a national core of volunteers that actually works for the court. So basically, um, we basically do what a social worker cannot do because their caseload is just so overwhelming. So, you know, we're assigned to a kid, a case, and, um, we're not really mentors. Like we do hang out with the kid, but mostly we're investigators. Like we keep track of, you know, how they're doing in school and what's going on with their biological family or their foster family, or like, you know, what do they actually need? And then we write up court reports and then we go into the court when they have hearings and tell the judge exactly what's going on with the case. Anyway, I spent several years very, very much uh, enmeshed in, in a particular case, but I bring this up because you know, the world of adoption around foster care is something that people really romanticize. And Mm -hmm. I had been guilty of that myself. And then once you get in there and see just how incredibly complicated it is. And, um, I, I, you know, having experienced that world, I now think there are cases, many cases in which kids are better off staying with their biological families, even if those families are like horrible abusers. Why? Why? Because at the, the end system of the day, itself is that bad? I mean, well, I don't mean like, or is it just the process of separation? Think, that's that bad. I mean, I think obviously the parents should not continue to abuse them. I mean, like there's extended family. So like if, if, you know, if you've got a kid in a bad situation, it's, I never thought I would say this. And this is not in all cases by any means. Let me just be very clear. But I used to think that, no matter what, if there was a kid in an abusive situation, taking him and putting him in with some nice, affluent, educated parents who would never do that kind of thing was like a 100% improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not the case. People really need their biological families. They need their blood relations. Um, and you know, there's why, the, the, why do they, why? Need them? I mean, I well, know, why I, I feel you, like intuitively I understand. 
No, um, yeah. because I think people need people knowing who you are is incredibly important. Even if who you are is comes from some really bad blood, <laughs> even if you've got some really really bad epigenetic history there. Um, and again, I there are adoption cases out of foster care that are huge successes. I'm not saying that. The, I, I'm just saying that I was surprised that there, that this is not always the case, that, that there are situations, um, in which this child is so traumatized in a particular way that it is almost impossible to put him in a placement that is going to work. I mean, um, it, it's also the case that you don't just take the child away from the parent, you know, the, the mother or the father, you take them away from their entire yeah. family and network, you know? So it, it, I know a lot of people who have been through abuse. I don't know that many people who have um, been adopted, but who went through like pretty horrific abuse at the hands of one or both parents. And, you know, they've come out of the other side, but they have, you know, they have siblings who they love and have like close bonds with a lot of time. The siblings, you know, are, are, you know, uh, they, each other's like, lifeline that's all they have about what yeah. happened yeah but, but then they might have aunts and uncles and grandparents who they're close to and and now maintain like connections with their, theirs you know the, it, it's really is a network that you're separating a child from not just that one parent that yeah. you know yeah and caseworker approaches sort of go in and out of fashion you know for a while it was thought that it was always almost always better to put the kid in a placement that was not a family placement mm -hmm. at, at all. Just get them totally out of the situation. Um, and I think more recently there's been greater efforts to keep, to keep families together, even if it means putting the kid with grandparents or aunts and uncles mm -hmm. or somebody with some connection to the family. And I mm -hmm. think, you know, one of the things that's, that's, I like about foster care. I mean, ideally you've got a, a placement either a permanent placement or, you know, temporary placement, a foster placement where the, the adoptive parents are in communication with the biological parents. Like mm -hmm. it really does take a village. It's such a cliche, but, um, I think that like the, you can have a really good situation where kind of everybody knows what the deal is and nobody's kidding themselves about how they're going to save this kid and give them a whole new life and deliver them an entire new personality and set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, if everyone can just sort of see that this kid needs like a, a wraparound, you know, you call them wraparound services, but it's also sort of like wraparound just kind of family structure. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that can, that can work really well. But the thing about the foster care world, it's amazingly fascinating because you've got, like every kind of person. I mean, you've got people who are really, really just do not have it together, like, you know, using drugs in the home and abusive and poverty and all this stuff. And then you've got people who are very wealthy and advantaged. You've got this kind of donor class who are, you know, contributing to these various charities that have to do with adoption and foster care. You've got religious people. I mean, you know, a lot of the adoptive parents during, you know, baby scoop. And since then the international, especially the international adoption parents were Christian, you know, fundamentalist Christians. I mean, that's very much part of their ethos. So you have like religious fundamentalists in the foster care world and also a lot of LGB people, LGBT people, because often they cannot get an adoptive child outside of the foster care system. They are going to get an older child. 
Um, so it is this like really incredible world um, of people coming from very, very different places, sometimes working at cross purposes, but um, also in many ways wanting the same thing, which is a good outcome for these kids. And also the experience of raising a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's where I kind of start to like ethically, you know, my, my, um, I, I don't know, my intuitions lead in a lot of different directions here, because on the one hand, I think that it would be terrible to not be able, you know, be able to have your own family, like, and to be able to build one. I, I think that it's hard for me to put myself in that position now that I'm, you know, now that I'm a mother, it's hard for me to go back and put myself in that place. But before I was a mother, I remember thinking that it would be, this is what I wanted. I wanted a family. I wanted um, a big family, actually, as big as I could, I could make. But that if I didn't have a family, like if I wasn't a mother, that I, I would be okay. You know, I would be able to make a good life for myself anyway. And, you know, I would just have to hustle and like find friends <laughs> who are still with me when I'm like um, older and better. But um, th- I, I do feel like I, I get that people deeply want families. They want to build their own families and this is the only way they can have it. At the same time, I don't know if anyone has a right to a family, you know, like to their own children, like children are not commodities. Children are not experiences, you know, although definitely they are treated that way. Um, but that's not an ethical thing. And I don't know if we should uh, encourage it. You know what I mean? Like, so I think, I think there are some, it, 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 there's the idea of everyone should be able to have everything and right. we should do what we can to enable everyone to have every kind of experience uh you know be they you know gay and uh uh or or a les- uh, lesbian couple and not able to produce um uh for any reason although lesbians can i guess it's only gay it's only gay gay men well gay men could have situation. uh well i mean they could get they a, could get a surrogate a surrogate yeah i mean yeah, yeah. I, yeah it's this is really tricky i mean is it that awesome was the- gay men who adopt for but lesbians i'm sure like I, I, now i'm talking out of my ass i don't know um, yeah, I don't know what the data is, but I mean, obviously it's, it's a little bit it's, easier for lesbians easier. they just, yeah. you'll get a sperm donor. But, yeah. um, I mean, I, I know a lot of gay male couples who have adopted and, and also used surrogates and mm-hmm. gone through all of that to, to yeah. great expense. And I also know a lot of straight couples who've used surrogates and gone through all of that to great expense. Yeah. Um, and I know that too. Yeah. And they have made that decision after considering adoption often. I mean, one thing that drives me crazy is when people say, well, why don't you just adopt? You know, and that's that's a little glib. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's a lot harder to adopt than people realize. And also, especially if the kid is older, like especially if you're talking about, um, you know, adopting from foster care, that is a parenting experience, but it is a totally different kind of parenting experience than you would get from having your own child or adopting mm-hmm. a kid from in infancy even. I mean, it is a valuable experience and I know people who are amazing at it and have great outcomes and it's the right path for them, but it is a completely different thing yeah. than having your own. And I think that's what people, that's the missing piece. Like that's what people don't realize. Like they are yeah. signing up for something else. And so if that's not what you want, yeah. then you are going to have to consider other yeah. options. And as long as they're available, um, people are going to do it. It's, it's so tricky. I just don't think there's any right answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and it is, but I have to say that even with, I think that, it, it, you know, I know women who have um, 
they could not produce like their own children. So they had to get a surrogate, like, you know, straight couples who had to, who had to do that. Um, I don't know if, you know, I have never been, uh, in that situation where I adopted, a, you know, um, a you child. Haven't? Not that no. you know. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't adopted any children. I've only had had biological children, but I what feel like. What if somebody like, came to you and they're like, I'm your adopted ch- child. You just didn't know. You know, and this is, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and, uh, Megan, (laughs) I'm going to try and choose my words carefully here because I know this is a really sensitive topic, but I, it's hard for me to, uh, to, to separate psychologically the physical experience of being pregnant and late and, you know, giving birth with you know being a parent i think it's it's interesting how like uh, the surrogacy industry and so many of the other you know little technologies that we have that ease the, bu- the burden on mothers um are are in fact like you know desexing uh you know parenthood you know there's mothers and fathers but if if everybody's you know if if there's the mother is not necessarily the person that gave birth to the child nor is she uh you know the, the person who uh breastfed the child then she's just there there are two parents you know it's very equal it's a very like nice little egalitarian world but it's interesting it's like kind of desexed in a way because i think that that specific maternal role uh which is unique you know and i i I think that if I had another child, I would, again, I never had one. So maybe we should talk to somebody who's given, you know, biologically given birth um, to their, to their own children and use something like um, a surrogate or adopted. Well, I think, um, okay. To, to okay. talk about like their experiences, you know, and how they felt in terms of like how they bonded with the baby, you know, because I, I, I feel like there were so many chemical things happening in my brain that made me into a mother. Like it wasn't just uh, simply that ex- it wasn't simply an experience. It was literally my brain yeah. different. You know what I mean? Like it, it, especially in the first couple of weeks postpartum, like I was insane. I was an, ins- I was a crazy person. I've had so many conversations with um, other mothers um, who, who, who share their experiences, like the ones that I've had where, you know, like you can, that you, you know what your baby sounds like within, you know, like you've heard your baby cry once and now you can recognize that cry in a room full of like screaming infants, you know, which one is yours. Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's all these crazy little, almost like, uh, I would have thought that women were, you know, they were imagining it a little bit. I would have gaslit, gaslit mothers a little bit until I experienced it, until I experienced it. And I, you know, I had an experience like soon after I, I gave, I gave birth where, um, you know, uh, the, uh, our, our son was taken, um, to, uh, to the nursery for, for a little while. Um, we needed like a break and <laughs> needed to be able to go to sleep. And they were, um, they were like, okay, we'll go take him to the nursery. In the hospital, uh, you mean? In the hospital, in the hospital. This was like soon after birth. And I, um, remember I like heard a cry, you know, at like an hour or so later, I heard a cry. It was so faint, but it woke me, like jolted me up, you know, and mm. I'm exhausted. I've you know, just had labor. <laughs> it's been a few hours since I've had labor. Jolts me awake. And I, 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 you know, say to my husband that he's right there, you know, like he's, he's out there. 
he's not in the nursery. He's there for some reason, like out in the in a little nurse's station in mm. the hallway. And um, my husband said to me, what, first of all, he couldn't hear. The, the cry that I heard, he couldn't hear. Right. It was so faint that he couldn't even hear it. Um, but then he was also saying, you're being crazy. You don't, what are you talking about? Like the nursery is way far away. There's no reason that he would be there. Um, go to sleep. <laughs> go to sleep. He's not there. And I was like, no, listen, I know 100%. I know for a fact that my baby's right there mm-hmm. and you need to find out why he's there and why, you know, he's not in the nursery. And he was, he just, you know, he was like, no, go to sleep, like <laughs> go to sleep. And then, you know, um, uh, a little while later, a nurse, a nurse came in and I asked her, I was like, at around this time, did you have him here for, for any, you know, some reason or any reason or was he like, did he move across this hallway? And she was like, yeah, he, he like came to get some ear screen or something that there was yeah. some reason that he maybe was there he was already doing some pre-med training. No, but you know, I hanging out at the nurse's station, just kind of, you know, and my husband was just like, my husband was like, how did you, how did you know? Like, how, how did you know? That that was that was him. How could you like we're in the maternity ward, you know, right. you're hearing screaming babies here and there. But I I knew, and it was like, it was, I knew in a way that I I don't think I've ever known anything in my life. It was just like my like reptile brain was like that's it, that's your kid, you know. And I've I've heard I've had so many different conversations with um, my friends uh, that were very similar. Like it's just like just that that yeah. same story. And so you can see why people would baby. want that. You could see why that would be a tremendous loss to somebody who wants that and can't have it. I mean, yeah, what how, you just described like, is but this making an argument for no, everybody but this should labor be able to situation, do it. No, but this labor situation, everybody literally can't, right? Like. Like what I had. Well, they was not if a it was an egg donor. If I had a, yeah, do you I think it would be any different? In me. Yeah, like, I think I it mean, would be the same. Yeah, it would okay. be the same. I think you I had think carried that it, child. It, it, it I yeah. think it, it's a process of labor itself that tells your brain you're a mom now. Like your brain doesn't know that this is not your own egg you know mm-hmm. um and it treats it you know it treats yeah the, the person that comes out of you as your own child and all those hormones come and they're you're bonding with it and your your brain changes um in in its structure and begins to pay attention to the little details of your child in a way that it never so i i think there what i meant is that there's something special about that process no i hear you yeah. of giving physical birth that i think made me into a mother that is different than parent you know, and not to say that there's nothing amazing about being a parent, but just that I think it was, it, it is different. Yeah. Um, and I can see also why that's very useful for a very, very delicate young child to have somebody that's completely insane, you know, and like wired to like treat every little tiny little sigh and cough as if it's like right the end of the world. Although there are mothers for whom that doesn't happen. There are mothers who are not up to the job who are on drugs who have mental health issues like going sure. down the line yeah so right. no i mean i don't know i mean this is the thing in in foster care it's always like it's it's never the right situation it's the least bad situation mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. get the child into um and so like with this whole topic it's like there's no right answers it's sort of like how do we what's what's the least wrong i guess you know <laughs> Um, when it comes I think for to the, the child, it's, you know, do what you can to limit the harm in the family itself, you know, and intervene if you need to intervene, but have more counselors who are, you know, available for that family and servicing the family. But I don't know much about the 
the the industry and i don't know i don't know how uh or industry but i mean but, it, but how... not even with i mean but any kind i'm not even talking about foster care necessarily they just like a lot of extremely dysfunctional people who are having children mm-hmm. um that's i mean that's always always been the case and i don't know why I, I don't know necessarily if intervention is always better than you know uh than letting it be or 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 intervening in a way that it would allow what what naturally goes on to be a little bit healthier i think we have like a bias towards like severe intervention that i'm now kind of suspicious towards Well, what do you mean just you know i think that that there's generally this idea that we can build this perfect world (laughs) and we can just move people around you know little pieces of little things and build that perfect experience that perfect life where you have uh you know the family that you wanted and you have it the way that you wanted it. Um, and your children are perfect and wonderful. And I just feel like there's so much, uh, there's a sense that, that certain things are owed to us, you know, and then we can build them and we can have them. And I think on the whole, this, uh, very, you know, we can create this beautiful, like utopian world is, a good thing but in some ways i can see it being harmful and i can see it being you know causing more harm actually like the, the baby scoop era is i think one of those times where everybody was convinced they were doing the right thing you know everybody involved in the adoption process was thinking that they were doing the right thing the parents thought they were doing the right thing but i think it's pretty clear when you look at what actually happened and you talk to the mothers and the vast majority of them are saying that nope i didn't want to give up that baby I didn't want to do it. Everybody else made me do it. I wouldn't have done it if it was up to me. I could never have done it. Like they would have preferred to be pariahs. <laughs> you know, they would have preferred poverty um, over giving up their children. They're also, okay, but just, okay, I'm just for a devil's advocate. I mean, they say that. Do they also say, I would not have gone on to have the life that I had. I would not have gone on to marry. I would have not gone on to have the children that I raised. Yeah, I, I mean, I you do probably. hear that too. Probably. Yeah. I mean, and then that is true um, of many of them they would, but, but I, I, from the stories that I was reading, I mean, it might also be that they were selected, right? Like to some degree that you, the people that want to talk about it are the people who are most wounded yeah, right. by the situation right. that always happens. But I, you know, I think I understood uh, or I thought that I understood the, 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 the young mother who gives up their child you know, because thinking rationally, insanely that it was good for me and it was good for the kid. Um, before, I, I think I, I kind of understood what the logic behind how that could work. After being a mother myself, I just have a very hard time empathizing with that mindset. I think that I would have been kicking and screaming forever and haunted forever, even if it meant that, you know, I was allowed to build a beautiful life afterwards. It would have just felt hollow, you know, and I, some of that is because I, I was raised without a lot of money. You know, I was raised in like a not super, not a perfect environment. I think in many ways it was a good environment. And then I had a two parent household. Um, but a lot of things were not amazing. I wouldn't call them dysfunctional, but you know, not, not ideal. Um, and I don't, you know, um, I think that, that, that was still a good life. Yeah, but I don't think it has to do with money. I don't. I mean, there's a lot of adoptive parents that were not wealthy at all. Yeah, but that, but that was a big part of it was just that they would be thrown into poverty, you know, and never be able to marry again. Um, that 
that they would be yeah, like, or relying the on the dole I mean, they of their, wouldn't be, yeah. I mean, look, you've got like a, you know, a girl from a strict Catholic family. She is going to be yeah, marriageable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think that the, you know, the economic thing is a factor. I don't know how, I mean, it's one of many, one of many factors. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, but yeah, it was certainly, do we know the numbers? Like how many babies were adopted during that period? I mean, are we talking like tens of thousands? Millions. Millions? Um, so there's different estimates that I heard in different places. Um, but between the whole like era, the baby scoop era, which was a couple spanning a couple of decades, it was millions of, of kids. Um, and then the, the peak of it was in the 1960s, like right up until the point of uh, the passage of, of Roe v. Wade. Yeah, that's my era. That's my my generation. I mean, I know a ton of people born my year who were yeah. adopted, for I sure. I think it was like 1970. That was like the peak year that's where it was like I was born. 90, 90,000 or something, like almost wow. that much. It was it was like yeah. an incredible amount of um, adoptions, uh, like non-relative adoptions. Right. Um and then it just it just just fell off of a cliff, which is so incredible because I think that you know that's all that the that the mothers needed. I think was just like a little. Well, bit of, there was also abortion. Like, there was also they, those babies um, were being aborted. Uh, some of them, like abortion, almost certainly um, had something to do with the decline. But I don't think that uh, that 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 was it, it, entirely the case. I can actually look up. The numbers yeah i'd be curious because uh, i'm not sure that you know there's not a lot of difference between 1968 and 1974 you know in terms of stigma um, okay so here's um in 1970 uh approximately 80 percent of the infants born to single mothers were taken for adoption purposes whereas by 1983 that figure had dropped to only four percent so these are infants we know are born to single mothers so yeah but they were born so there's a whole bunch of ones that were aborted right right no but just out of the ones that were born just the percentage of the ones that were born that percentage declined okay you okay know what i mean okay so, okay like it, yeah yes a lot of them were were yeah aborted. i right. think by uh, 83 the picture was very different the 70s i mean stuff really started to change i would think like mid 70s it would still be a stigma by 83 we had you know we had like people we had we had this idea of the empowered the empowered single woman um, raising a baby by herself. I mean, it's funny when I so when I was in college in the late '80s and early '90s, one of the uh, sort of paradigms. I mean, this was a college that had a lot more women than men. Let's just put it that way. But like a, a one, I think a lot of the girls sort of imagine themselves being single mothers of adoptive babies. It was like this kind of yeah, it was a particular kind of glamour, glamorized paradigm. Ew. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were like a show, there was this, <laughs> there were Ugh. like, yeah, no, you, you would live in some like fabulous loft apartment and wear like a, like a Chinese, you know, a Japanese silk kimono as your bathrobe and have this, you know, artsy, cool artsy career. And you never really, you know, met a man worth settling down with, but at some point you adopt a baby and you just have everything. Oh yeah. Or you have a baby with your gay friend. I think that was, that was a big, oh yeah, that was a big thing. That was a, like a Ugh. very much a sort of um kind Why? of template what, what's, because so because what's because you knew you weren't gonna what's... because if you can't find like a guy that you want to marry um and you want to do that then like do it with your gay male friend okay that's what that um there was a movie um okay. with jennifer aniston and paul rudd 
uh, about that. Was it the object of my affection um, based on the Stephen McCauley novel? Yeah, it was a really good movie, actually. Mm. They were going to or she was I don't I can't remember what the situation was, if she was pregnant or she wanted to get pregnant anyway. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, uh, so that's a that's a different situation. That's like a it doesn't gross me out the way a single woman adopting a child um makes me think really you know, like, i mean i know so i know a lot of single women who have adopted children by themselves many no 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 i mean for for yeah. this the purpose that you're that you're oh, um, oh like this this, this, this idea that it's the, this idea that it's fashionable like to to do it you know it that, was cool. it, it was um, modern it was modern um okay. i think that was the feeling and the, okay. and that it was um it was just better, like not better. Look, obviously, if <laughs> people, if you know, the ideal would have been the ideal would have been to like find you know a, a great guy who was a provider and also educated, and you know, you want to find a, a, a an architect that also wore a hard hat when he went on to his construction site. I mean, you know, you want like the artsy guy who's also a provider. All this, all these ridiculous re requirements. Yeah. Um, and so, barring that. Yeah, I think people, women did not want to, you know, like, you know, mess around with people who were not up to the job. Yeah. And then they, well, so I think what did happen, because I actually know lots of people who were raised by single parents. Um, that is something I did know. I don't, I didn't know many kids who were adopted, but I did know lots of people who were either, you know, uh, their parents had divorced or their parents had never married, um, you know, and they were raised by primarily usually the mom but i actually had neighbors who were raised by like the, the the dad um and it wasn't always a great situation but sometimes it was um like sometimes the parent the single parent was like up for the task and working constantly to like provide for their children but i think that it, it what i also found is that a lot of these uh kids who went through um a primarily single parent single parent upbringing seem to be very pro marriage and like very committed to the idea of yeah. you know like getting married and then staying married for the kids um and i think that's really telling and kind of sad um but I've, I've I've noticed that trend myself because th those are the people I knew. I right. Knew. Well, also people who are high achieving and highly educated are more likely to stay married. I mean, the two parent household that you see that in the educated classes. I mean, that that's the irony of it is all these people, you know, liberal elites are going on about how we shouldn't judge and mm -hmm. we should, you know, support single single parent households and it doesn't matter. You don't need a father, all this kind of stuff. But they're the ones that. Um, always have higher rates of two-parent households always 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 yeah yep. yeah I, I think it's um I think it's kind of sinister to like I'm glad that the, the conversation about uh the importance of like a two-parent household like marriage is is coming back up and it's not that you know I don't come from a I, I actually rejected my traditional upbringing in many ways um but but it makes sense. The economics of it makes sense to me. And the second you spend time with, you know, a really young child, even as a, you know, babysitting a young child, you, you, you see how big of a job it is. You know, it is, you, you do need two people who are there. Um, well, you need two people back. who are competent. I mean, this is competent the thing, like, what, I mean, 
Okay, but Even what if you can't find a guy? Competent? Okay, what if you're a woman and you want to have a kid and you just can't find a guy? You've never met somebody who would marry you. Just full stop right there. What are you supposed to do? That wouldn't marry. I okay. So that's those are different scenarios. Like if I if I hadn't found if I was willing to f- marry certain guys, but they weren't willing to marry me, and I'm just like stuck with like nothing, then okay. Um, I would still probably enlist family members, you know, I would still probably like try to move back in with my parents or something. Okay. Like knowing what I know now. And have a child by yourself. And have a child by myself. Okay. But I think people knowing what I know. Yeah. 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 Um, lots of low income women, actually, that's what they do. They live with parents. They live with like, it's like mom and grandma. Because the men are not up to the job. It's like having another child. I mean, I that's think, yeah well sometimes they're, they're it's like having another child sometimes it's also like that that they 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 cheat they you know they will like have right. know, cheat and leave the woman it's kind like of having it's a it's an extra burden so but right but you're saying two different things like so i mean the two-parent household is better but i'm saying it's only better if certain criteria are met i don't think that but i i it depends on what if you think that that's what's going on with most men like mo- the problem with most men is that they're children like and, and that's why women aren't marrying them i i don't know if that's the case and that i i don't know if that's what's stopping but that's you know i that's not my position so i don't know but for my friends who i'm judging you know on the on the side but I, I, from the experiences that i've seen it's more of that there was no there was not enough compatibility or romance or so there was some expectation of something right. that they didn't, didn't want to settle through right but it, yeah. yeah but that that's what i've seen more than they were children because I, I see a lot of grown men who are also being rejected um like yeah like, look it, it depends on the community i mean but, like you know we've talked about this like in, in, the, in the in the black community which is not something either of us has any standing to speak about um you do hear from to this be sure. you hear this from women <laughs> all the sure. time yeah, yeah, yeah. uh that it's actually would be more burdensome to have the father of their child right in their house right. i mean also there's also rates of incarcerations there's all kinds of variables but um i don't i just don't think it's simple i mean i i've been thinking about this a lot and i want to talk about this maybe on another episode but i i'm i like it that this conversation about the ways in which the sexual revolution um had un- unintended consequences that have been pretty significant i i like that that conversation has come up um, but I also, I, I also think it's not everybody can like play by these rules. Like it just doesn't work out for everybody. And, yeah. um, it's it not so easy. I guess it just, it's nothing is so simple, you know? So it's, I think it, the question is whether, uh, creating an environment that gives these, um, you know, the, 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 the the misfits, I suppose, I don't know how to phrase it, but like the, the, all those cases in which that doesn't work out. Um, I think the question is that the difficult question is that does creating that kind of environment that eases the burden on these, um, these other cases also create an environment in which, um, that standard, that norm is simply untenable for everyone. You know what I mean? Like that is just that it loosens the, the, whatever social glue needed to keep and keep um, you know, uh, somebody who could have had that, you know, that kind of more stable family environment. And I, I, I'm, I'm torn, you know, I don't know how to feel about it. Um, cause I, I do know lots of people who were, who had single parents and it wasn't like the best, I like ideal upbringing, but it was like, they're alive and they're, it's, it's good that they were, <laughs> it's good that they had their parent in their life. Um, and, 
uh, it, it, it's it's hard to say one way or the other, but maybe there there is something we can do about um, recognizing the place that marriage has in you know, and not not marriage in this like traditional like trad. This is such a sanct like sanctified by God kind of way, but just just the the general idea of a partnership mm-hmm. and of like building your life together with somebody with whom you intend to build a family, you know, like with family being that end goal of your life, you know? And I don't, I don't think that that's how I thought of myself, you know, like I I didn't think family is my end goal. I just thought of like, you know, I'm a young woman in the world and I'm going to live my life, you know, (laughs) until at some point, uh, you know, I recognize that, oh my God, I do want a family. And if I want a family, I got to like make a move. But when did you recognize that? What age would you say? I think sort of what if you had asked me when I was like a teenager, well, whether yeah, you know, I would have said like, <laughs> I'm going to be single. I'm going to be single in my forties. Like I'm going to be one of those women. Like I'm going to be, you know, yeah, I'm exactly. enjoy it. You would and be, be you would empowered and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to, yeah. And I'm, kimono robe. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not going to live that life. I think I, I was disgusted by the idea for a very, very long time. And then it was, um, I think what did speed up the process of me recognizing that I, I want a family was it falling into a social circle where there were a lot of older women who have now hit like this wall of, you know, like, oh my God, I need, I want a family. I recognize now that I want a family. Also, my career is at its peak and so demanding. Also, there's no men left. You know, also I have like two years like to have a, to have a kid. Like, I, I I began to see with my own eyes these women who were under just impossible, just impossible yeah. circumstances. And I remember thinking if they can fall, if they can like you know, end up in this position and these are like like beautiful, like super intelligent, like high achieving everything, like you know, good at everything kind of people. Of course. And if they can if they can land in this kind of situation and be unhappy about it, then surely like <laughs> i will end up there so i got to change what i'm doing and i got to change the times that the scale you know in my head um the timeline in my head of when i need to do certain things so but you were already you had met your husband though so i had already met my husband this was within the context of a relationship there was a, this was in the context of, but i right. i also find it i don't know i i've always been i don't know i'm like a long-term relationship kind of gal i i i like relationships i like being partnered i don't like i mean single wasn't terrible it wasn't you were like, single for kill. three months what did what, like what do you, when, when was this able like two months yeah when was this fabled like single period i didn't like you were? i just didn't like yeah well i didn't okay I didn't like you would have gotten used to it after you know if, have... if you were single for three months you would have gotten used to it you'd be like i, I got okay this. yeah i just feel like i i think i thrive in a partnered situation i think part of it is because i am not that sociable if i was if i was a kind of a uh, person who really was it was easy for me to make friends it was easy for me to go out all the time like get out the door you know then i think that maybe i could have enjoyed a single life but given how, how like much of a homebody i am you, i just need like it, it's just the easiest way to have human contact yeah you know well, you can be a homebody and be single as well i say this is the, the phase that i'm in it's- 
quite quite lovely. It is yeah. not at all the stage 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 you're in. You're like going out all the time. I never I'm go like out. gearing up all the time. I only, you to only me, think I go out because you're like me? no, because you're I'm like oh, I have out. to say like I can't answer this text because I'm going out like occasionally, and so that you that makes it seem like I'm going out because all the time. Because you are, just you are going, avoiding you're like, oh, your text. Lunch. I have this. Yeah, lunch. the lunch. Just, like. I'm this, I'm hey, that. Like that. And tomorrow I'm going to hang out with my, you know, I'm going to hang out with this. I'm going to go to this dinner thrown by these like important people. I don't have this life. Yeah, you could. You could. Everyone wants you to be there when I go to those things. They're like, where's Sarah? Why isn't she here? I am sleeping with my, with my kid. Was like, well, that's you know, what I say. And they're like, we're drooling on my we face. Didn't hear that. Like, that's how, that's how I sleep. I sleep at like, at like 845. I'm in bed yeah yeah um well okay i have a lot of thoughts i i actually have a lot of thoughts um i want to talk about this in another episode just about like when is the best time to couple up and brain development and all that kind of thing like really i've been thinking about yeah because well, here's the thing and this is a topic for another episode but we'll just tease this so when we talk about like gender stuff, for instance, we say that the, the brain only finishes developing, the brain only fully develops when you're 25, right? Your brain is still developing. Okay. And so that's why we shouldn't make irreversible medical decisions. But at the same time, we're starting to say, well, it's better if you partner up early. There's the cornerstone marriage versus the capstone marriage. And all that I actually think is true. Um, but if we're going to say that the brain is still developing until age 25, how can we say, well, you should find somebody while you're still in college before you're 22? How do you square those two things? So you think that if, um, somebody makes a decision like that before, so do you think that like, you're basically like a legal minor before you're 25? No, I just think I, it, it literally just occurred to me today yeah. that we love, we in this space love to go around talking about how your mind is still developing until you're 25. Yeah. But we're also saying you should not wait so long before you make a huge decision and commit yourself to somebody in a certain kind of life. Yeah. So, I mean, I, again, I, this is a much bigger conversation and I might write something about this too, but um, mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. being 25 and actually that is the year that I started completely uh, reframing my sense of self and like, oh, all the mm. things that I thought were true about myself are actually maybe not true. That's interesting because I, I, f I met my husband in my early 20s. I was like 21. I thought you were Not like even 20, 20. Yeah. Like, yes. I think right. I, I think I was. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was, I think I turned 21. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Yeah. My, what am I thinking? Yes. I, he was there at my 21st birthday. So <laughs> yeah, no, but I, <laughs> I bet he <laughs> I was. Like, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, he was there. He was around. Um, no, I mean, Hey, I'd been drinking for a long time. Yeah. You've been, you've been drinking for like two which, months. You've been single was, for two whole months. That was the point at which I started drinking legally. But before then <laughs> I had, Lots of like I I was like an expert in the in the fake ID um, world. Like I, oh, I, I had fake. You should get back into that. That's a good side hustle. It yeah, I I know all about it. And I actually had a, a somebody else give me their ID and I used it for a while, which was a real ID. What that was that person really white? Well. What what ethnicity? That person were they? was. I mean, so she, it was so amazing because she was so she was uh, half Hispanic, half um, South Asian, like me. So she just looked brown. Um, but she had a headscarf on like in the, in, on the ID. 
<laughs> and I would use that ID to get into places like with this woman with a hijab on. Seriously? And oh, I, wait, she was Hispanic? White. She was half Hispanic. She, she was half she... Hispanic, half she, she's um extended member of my family. Okay. Um so married to yeah, mom was Hispanic. Okay. But she grew up like Muslim and so she had like on her ID she had this like black headscarf on. And that ID, like, it was so crazy because so the ID wasn't even given to me directly. Her Hispanic cousin from like her mom's side of the family, like, um, had the ID and she was just like, she looks white, this girl, like, come totally. And when she had turned 21, she like handed me this. Oh. Was, and she gave it to me. She's like, girl, works like a charm. Everybody looks at that headscarf and says, oh, oh, oh. like, I'm not oh, messing like, they with don't this. even, yeah, they don't even, they don't scrutinize but it. Are she, I thought you're let, not supposed to you drink in. if you're Muslim. Yeah, exactly. That's why it freaks people out. When they, when, like when you go to when you hand that ID to a, like a bar, like you know the, the guy at the door, he just doesn't know what to do with it because he just focuses on the headscarf right. and doesn't think about whether you look alike or or not, and you just get in. And it That's was incredible. Brilliant. It was a great ID. Yeah. 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 So if anyone's listening and is underage, that's the find your find your. I think we friend. can make them. I think that could be a good merch item for us. Mm. Headscarf, mm-hmm. uh, fake ID, a special place in hell. Yep. Uh, fake ID. Yeah. Right. Like yep. state of residence, special hell. Hell. <laughs> special place. Town is special place. State is hell. Yeah. Well. Anyway, I this is I'm, I'm thinking more about this, but um. Yeah, we can. We have a lot of merch ideas. It'll be fun. Let's let's do it. Let's get mm-hmm. out some merch. Yeah, sell some IDs. Yes, for sure. Okay. Well, I think we've. Uh, I don't think we've covered. I think we've sort of only scratched the surface of this topic, but it's it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, anyway, um, uh, subscribe to a special place dot substack dot com org. No. Yes, a special place dot substack dot com. Com. Com, com, substack. The substack com. is a com. The substack please. is a com. Yes, go um go there to subscribe if you want bonus episodes. Um and yeah, until next time. Yeah. See ya. Thanks. Thanks.